Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. On this show, we celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. So every Sunday, you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, farmers, authors, sommeliers, mixologists, even tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. I hope you'll stay tuned because there is a scrumptious and scintillating hour ahead. But know that you can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram posting something truly delicious at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'm always serving up seconds as well at chefjamie.com. So let's get to the culinary conversation, shall we? This past week, I made a really great steak. Now, I mean that with all humility. There was something about the three-day marinade and really good olive oil and lots of fresh herbs from the garden and a ton of minced garlic. And by the way, if you're in a pinch and you need a quick steak marinade, pesto will do the trick. But it was really about the cut of beef that stood out, that made it extraordinary. And I realized that I might not have shared this secret with you before. Now, beef quality and the vast selection of cuts are ever-evolving in this wonderful world of food that we all live in and enjoy. So I wanted to make a formal introduction today. I wanted to introduce you to my new friend. Well, not so new to some, but a most exciting introduction to others. Please meet my secret harbored love, the richest friend I have, my chef's secret revealed. I want you to meet the ribeye cap. Yes, you heard me right. The ribeye cap, also known as the deckle, the tastiest cut on the cow. So what is the deckle, you ask? Well, allow me to clarify some of the confusion. The beef deckle does not have anything to do with the beef brisket, contrary to much of what you might read on the internet. The deckle is the flap or the top of the prime rib that is generally removed when the rib is made into ribeye roasts or ribeye steaks or even Spencer steaks, as they're sometimes called. Now, I'm calling it the renaissance of the deckle, and you can thank me later, by the way. Also known as the ribeye cap, the light of my life if there is fire or a grill around, the deckle might just be the most delicious piece of steak you will ever taste. Now, it's called the calotte in France. It's called the butcher's butter in a meat house. And in fact, the steak that most butchers used to keep for themselves is the deckle. But on a menu, say at Mario Batali's Carne Vino in Vegas or at a Fleming's Prime Steakhouse across the country, you can now look for the deckle. Now, I've harbored this secret love for this particular cut of meat for quite some time. You've seen it before. When the cap is left on when the ribeye steaks were cut, it's that fatty, delicious, buttery piece of meat that you always eat first, but you really don't know what it's called. So what exactly is the ribeye cap? Well, 
If you take a look at the ribeye steak, there's a bone, preferably, because bones make everything taste better. Always order the bone-in ribeye. And then there's that large eye of meat that's attached to it. And then around the eye of meat is the ribeye cap. If you trim it off from the ribs before cutting them into steaks, you end up with what is the entire muscle. It's usually about 12, 14, sometimes 16 inches long, depending upon the size of the cow. It's eight inches or sometimes six inches wide, and it's about an inch or so thick, an inch and a half if you get lucky. Now, this is the gold that you are looking for. We all know that ribeyes are the most flavorful premium steak available, while tenderloin is the most tender. Well, the ribeye cap has the best of both worlds. It's all the flavor and the juicy fat of a ribeye with the tenderness of a tenderloin. And it's a boneless cut, of course. So I suggest when you get your hands on a deckle or a deckle steak, as it might be called, it's best cooked using high heat methods. That is either in a screaming hot cast iron skillet or preferably over your smoking hot grill. Now, because it's relatively thin, you can cook it all the way through on the hot side of the grill because you should keep one side hot and one side moderate for the larger cuts that need to cook through without too much char. But you won't need to finish the deckle on the cooler side of the barbecue as long as you mark it on both sides on the super hot side of your barbecue and flip frequently, then you should be just fine. Now, it is admittedly pricey because there are a few others in the know, but I guarantee that you will not find a meatier, more tender cut of beef anywhere. This is truly a steak to savor, and now you're in the know, and oh, no problem. You're welcome. Okay, so now that we've dished on the best cut of meat anywhere, it's my goal every week to help you think like a chef, to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. And posted at chefjamie.com, I have a weekly feature called Just That, Think Like a Chef. And it's usually seasonally focused, and it's to hopefully inspire you to create new dishes in your kitchen. Now, since fall means apples, and apples mean so many things like pies and donuts and cakes and crisps and tart tans and pork chops with apples and applesauce, oh, and so much more, apples are at their peak right now. They start actually in late August, although we've had a very hot summer, so they've started a bit later, uh, mid-September, and they'll run through November. And I love cooking with the seasons, so I wanted you to take advantage of the bounty. Now, eating seasonally might make you think of roast pork and buttery mashed potatoes and a sweet tart sauerkraut. And that sauerkraut, while based in cabbage, should always have some sliced apples inside. Or consider like a maple glazed double cut pork chop and a salad of apples and endive and grapes with maybe a maple cider vinaigrette. Ooh, that sounds good. So my Think Like a Chef feature is all about choosing and storing and baking and eating apples out of hand. Did you know that you should always look for firm, heavy apples? And this applies to most fruit. That's how you pick a great watermelon during the summer. Apples should be heavy for their size. And of course, you want to avoid those that have bruises or damaged skin. And you always want to keep the apples in a cool, dry place. Now you can place them, of course, in the produce drawer in your refrigerator, but they tend to lose a bit of flavor from the chill. Now, the apples that 
of course, we know are most powerful because they give off ethylene gas, and that is all apples in the category, tend to cause ripening of other fruits or the the speeding up of ripening of other fruits. So if you want to ripen bananas fast, you place the bananas or stone fruit or even tropical fruit, by the way, in a paper bag with an apple, and then you check the fruit's ripeness the next day. And I will tell you, it's a great tip, a great tool, in fact. But if you want to keep your bananas from over-ripening, you'll want to keep the apples in a separate place. The best apples for baking right now, I love the Honeycrisp. I'm a big Gala and Fuji fan as well. And if you can find Braeburn or Empire, those are awesome. Uh, For applesauce, I happen to love applesauce, in fact, and I make mine with uh, ginger ale. Yes, in the slow cooker. Oh, it's so good. Lots of aromatic spices like ginger and cinnamon. The recipe's posted on the website, chefjamie.com. But the best apples for applesauce are often Pink Ladies, Macintosh, um, Granny Smith's, if you like a tart applesauce. And then the best apples for pie, all of the above, in fact, except for you want to leave out any of the apples that get mushy when baked. So look for the crisp, most delicious ones. And then eaten out of hand, I would say Honeycrisp reigns supreme. Gravenstein, incredible. And there are uh, dozens of varieties available. Make sure when you're at your farmer's market that you ask for a taste. That's how you'll know the best apple of the season. And you'll find my list for the best to bake with, to eat out of hand, and of course, to cook with, all posted on the website at chefjamie.com. There are a few other things there you won't want to miss, like my weekly dish. I was thinking fall, and I have chili on the brain. So I've written a recipe for a pumpkin chicken chili that was a hit. My husband says that it's out of this world. It's sweet onions and poblanos with ground chicken and canned pure pumpkin puree. And then all the things you love about a good, hearty, rich chili. I'm using a lot of smoked paprika as we come into fall as well. There's something really rich and smoky and wonderful about it. And if you don't have any in your kitchen, it's a great addition to chili. So try it out and let me know what you think. The truly sweet recipe posted on the website this week is the simplest apple crisp. Because of course, sharing with you my love and passion for apples, I thought you need a simple, easy dessert, a go-to for supper tonight, right? So you can even add, by the way, to this simple topping on the crisp, which is oats and flour and two kinds of sugar, you could add your favorite chopped nuts. Or if you really want to indulge, add crisp crumbled bacon to your best crisp toppings and oh you'll make a fruit buckle or a crisp that is out of this world i've also posted a ginger bourbon cocktail i love anything ginger flavored and this cocktail is a knockout so check it out those recipes posted at chefjamie.com there's so much more delicious conversation coming up We are going to dish out the best bacon recipes ever from the newly released Bacon Nation cookbook. We are a bacon nation. Marie Rama is here. Plus, Jumana Asad cooks dishes from her native Beirut, and she has beautiful inspiration for baklava and more. Plus, she's the Good Morning America contributor and New York Times bestseller Everybody Loves, and she made the shift. Tori Johnson coming up live in just a bit. 
Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with more right after this. Don't touch your dial. It's delicious. It's divine. It's food and wine. Oh, yes, of course. Maybe it's bacon. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are a bacon nation, so says the new cookbook release, and I agree. Bacon Nation is a bacon lover's dream, a collection of over 125 smoky, savory, crispy, meaty, salty, and scrumptious recipes from starters like spiced nuts with bacon and a bacon and butternut squash galette, which looks so good, to main courses that feature a brawny bacon beef bourguignon and a paella with chicken and bacon, even dessert. Doesn't rum ice cream with candied bacon chips and chocolate peanut bacon toffee sound good? Oh, yes, it does. This is a cookbook with sizzle. And Marie Rama, the food writer and recipe developer, is here to share its virtues. I'm so glad to have you, Marie. Welcome. Well, thank you for that introduction. (laughs) I will say bacon in everything is something we see across the country. So share your personal fascination, if you would, with bacon and how delicious it must have been testing the recipes for this book. Well, it it actually was delicious. And for me, it was it was kind of um, a long journey because while I was a bacon lover, I didn't really use bacon, as I assume most people today. I think one thing that Peter and I did from the very beginning uh, was to decide, too, that there are a lot of recipes out there, either on the Internet or even in magazines and cookbooks, that, that combine bacon with lots of cheese. And we thought that was an, a really easy route and too obvious and not particularly you know, healthy, wholesome, we wanted to do something much more subtle and something that was quite different. And so we started out by talking to a lot of chefs to see how they use bacon. Mm. And what we got were some really terrific answers. One of them that I'll never forget was that bacon in and of itself has not just one or two flavors. It has like four or five flavors. It has, of course, meatiness from the pork. It has smokiness because smoke from hard wood is is added. It has a sweetness because it is cured with sugar. It has a salt, saltiness because it is cured also with salt. But it also has something called umami, which is that, you know, kind of subtle, savory flavor that is hard to define, but you find it in a lot of foods like mushrooms and Parmesan cheese. And some people find it as a savoriness that lingers on the tongue forever and, and for a long time, that lasts on the tongue after you've taken a bite of that food. And when right. you think about bacon, you actually do get that kind of lingering of flavor and taste. Mm, and I would, true. I would add one more element that is certainly pleasurable to the eating, dining, creating food experience, and that is the smell of bacon. Yes. When you cook it, it's oh. like overpowering. It's <laughs> what brings people to the kitchen. It's, it's kind of intoxic and exhilarating. It is. is. I agree. I I call umami, Marie, the sense that is, I believe, defined by craveability, right? So umami to me is, is what you crave, but you might not put your finger on it. And I think it's so beautiful that bacon possesses it, as do mushrooms, like you mentioned, and other 
individual ingredients because the simplicity of that ingredient has such a depth to it. You talk about pig plus salt plus smoke equals bacon. And before we delve into the recipes, you mention at the beginning of the book, or you write in depth about it, um, that you should always buy the best bacon. So give us a lowdown, if you would, on what's in a label, because there are so many choices when it comes to bacon. Well, you're so right. And in Bacon Nation, we actually, in the back of the book, give you some I think it's some 20 or so different choices, brands that we tested. I, I tested about 35 or 40 different bacons, and we, we did come up with some favorites. Mm. But one thing that I didn't know before I started on this journey was that I, you know, I didn't know that the package obviously gives you a lot of information so you can read, get into the habit of reading the label on the package, reading the package carefully. And, you know, bacons today, some bacons uh, are put out there as being unprocessed or quote-unquote nitrate-free, not made with any nitrates. But what they're talking about with those bacons, and there are those, I won't mention the brands, but they're fine if, if, if that's a concern of yours, is not to use sodium nitrate, but they have to use some kind of a nitrate to cure the bacon. So they actually use what is considered, quote-unquote, a natural nitrate, which is, comes from a celery extract. The other thing is you want to look at the package and make sure that the bacon has been smoked with hard wood, not with some kind of phony artificial liquid smoke that is pretty disgusting. So it has, it should really say hardwood smoke. Like preferably applewood or pecan? Yeah. Those are my well, favorite. Well, whatever you like. I mean, yes. I love applewood oh, smoke me bacon. Too. But, you know, it could be other kinds of hardwood, like hickory is a very sure. popular one. Um, um, there, there are a number of others that are out there as well, but it should be some kind of a hard wood. Very smart. You say that there's nothing good without the grease, and I agree. I love that at the beginning of Bacon Nation, there is a, a list of inspiration for what to do with the leftover bacon grease. And I pour mine from the baking sheet, as I'm sure you do if you're roasting in the oven, yes. or drain it from the pan. Right. But you say pop popcorn in bacon fat. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Use it it's to really make great. a roux. Uh, use it to cook sunny side up eggs. Oh, there's so many wonderful ideas. But maybe none better than the bacon swizzle stick. Oh, Would you yeah, teach yeah. us how? I think yeah. you've made this famous. Well, it's, it's because, you know, you, 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 you probably know, Jamie, you're in the kitchen, you're working for like a year and a half on all these recipes. There's 125 in the book in Bacon Nation. And, and like some, in the middle of the night, you go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I could take bacon right. and I could. <laughs> Wrap it and twist it. Why don't I do that? Wonderful, right. you know. Exactly. And then you know you get up in the middle of the night, you go try it, and that, that's kind of what happened with that. Um, you know, you're you're testing so much, and I tried it a couple of different ways, and then I actually twisted it and wrapped it up in a paper towel, and and because bacon does work and to cook it in the microwave, I microwaved it so it it went pretty quickly, and in about a minute or so. When you unwrap it in the paper towel around it, you, you get this edible, very firm bacon swizzle stick, which is great for, like, using in, you know, Bloody Marys or serving, dipping into chocolate. And so serving, like, smart. As, a, as an a, a, accompaniment to a big, big bowl of ice cream. I've mm. done that for guests, and everybody is just wowed. I love the idea of bacon and scallops as a compliment. You have a beautiful bacon and edamame salad with sea scallops. Yeah. We try to do things that were healthy. You nice. Know, that, Kind of like mixed it in. We, we Peter and I, you know, we're, we're really very conscious of our weight, our health, and actually, I, you know, there are a lot of recipes. I think that they're just they're judicious 
in the mm. use of bacon and bacon fat. Animal fats are really not the culprit, you know, that, and I don't want to go out, I'm not a nutritionist, don't, don't want to go out too much on a limb, but a lot of current studies are showing that we need some fat in our diet and animal fat is really okay, and it's really the sugars and the processed foods that are going to get us into trouble. So, you know, that's kind of like, it was good news for me after Bacon Nation came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think it's good advice. Eat more bacon. I can't wait to make your cheddar cheese and bacon biscuits and the peanut butter bacon cookies. What a yeah. fabulous yeah. combination. The recipes are, are exquisite. And I certainly very much appreciate you sharing your passion and everything you love about the magical ingredient that is bacon. We've excerpted a recipe at chefjamie.com so that you can bring the cookbook into your collection as well a link to the amazon page for bacon nation and marie once again always a pleasure thank you thank you thank you jamie whether it's sweet or salty or anywhere near divine you'll hear about it here chef jamie gwen in your radio we'll be right back This is an easy way to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as the delicious conversation continues. The countries around the Mediterranean have long produced an abundance of fresh herbs and fruits and vegetables that have been the basis for healthy eating for centuries. This is particularly true of Lebanon, where the food is steeped in tradition. And Chef Jumana Akkad specializes in bringing these beautiful tastes to American tables. Through her popular food blog called tasteofbeirut.com, she has shown thousands of home cooks how the delicious cuisine of her native Lebanon can be prepared at home and indulged in. And I'm delighted to share the debut of her cookbook entitled Taste of Beirut as Jumana brings to life the rich and complex and delicious flavors of the Middle East, sharing her heritage through recipes and anecdotes, teaching everyone who will listen how to create these beautifully inspired and delicious tasting dishes. Jumana joins us live, and I'm so glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you, and (laughs) hello, Jamie. I'm so glad to be here and back. Well, I'm (laughs) glad to have you back in the States as well. We know um, from reading the book, you spent three years cooking and testing recipes in Lebanon, and the book is beautiful. I will say it made me so hungry, Jumana, (laughs) because there were so many of my favorites, some of which I didn't realize had Lebanese roots. And you talk about in the book how remarkable it is that such a small country can have such great attention worldwide placed on its cuisine. They say that um, a necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. When you are in a country that doesn't have industry, uh, doesn't have oil, doesn't have... It's just, it's a beautiful country with beautiful nature. Well, people become resourceful. And I've spent half my time while I was in Lebanon in the mountain, and I've learned about the, the wild herbs and plants that what people do with them. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, it was unbelievable. And the, the sumac that people now, it's becoming a trendy spice. Well, it's all over the mountains there. And the reason they use it is because they can't grow lemons 
at the high altitudes where they use sumac. Isn't that interesting? Okay, talk to us about sumac. I have a love for sumac. I learned about sumac from a shaker on the table in a Middle Eastern restaurant a long time ago. And of course, it has that beautiful purplish hue. And I was the first to ask, what is this? What do you put it on? How do you eat it? What does it taste like? And I've, I've <laughs> yeah. since begun using it on everything. It has this bright, sort of beautiful... You talk about citric acid as its sort of flavor profile. It has right. a, a tartness to it. That it starts. It's yes. exceptional, though. It, it heightens the flavor of everything. Yes, it does. And um, so as I was saying, in, in the mountains where, uh, you know, as you're walking around, you see those bushes, and now it's the time where people pick the sumac and dry it. It, it looks like a, like a tiny grape. It's the little berries. They dry those berries. When they're really dry, they, they, they grind them. Now, the key is you want to grind. Uh, there's a portion that's not really edible. Uh, it's, it's only the outer covering that's the best to eat. But anyway, we're getting technical here. Mm-hmm. What's, what's for sale is definitely edible. But um, uh, it, it, was, it was out of necessity. People wanted to have a lemony flavor, they couldn't get lemons. Lemons are grown on the coast. Mm-hmm. See, Lebanon has a coastline, which is on the Mediterranean, and two mountain ranges with some pretty tall mountains where uh, the snow can stay pretty much year-round sometimes, and, and then the, the valley, which is the Beka Valley. And each one of these regions produces a certain, certain types of food. That's why for such a small, tiny place, it has such a variety of foods, uh, because it depends on your um, topography. Of course. I think yeah. it's so interesting that the everyday ingredients that you use are wonderfully available today. Yes. And you talk about the Lebanese larder. So if we want to embark on Middle Eastern dishes, specifically Lebanese cuisine, there are a few things that you need to keep in your pantry. I know that um, bulgur and cracked wheat are most uh, most essential to your cuisine. What else can you share with us? Like carob molasses is intriguing uh, to me. Yes, a molasses is something that you could actually make at home. Um, it, it's, uh, of course, best if it's uh, the, the folks in the mountains make molasses. What they do is they take, for example, their grapes, their sweet grapes. They take um, a portion to the, um, the press, the village press, mm-hmm. and they boil it and get this syrupy. Um, it's, it's almost like a maple syrup, except it would, it would taste like grape. It's sweet. It's almost like toffee. Mm. And they use it uh, in the olden days. They didn't have sugar. I mean, white sugar is a recent, relatively recent. It's only been around for the past uh, maybe 150 years in, in that area. So they used to sweeten their food with molasses, grape or carob. Carob is a tree that's all over. Hmm. Um, and uh, it goes back to even biblical times. I mean, it's mentioned in, in uh, the Bible. But anyway, um, you've got carob molasses. Uh, grape molasses, fig molasses, apple molasses, mm. and then you've got one that's more tart, and that's the pomegranate molasses. Which I love, by the way. And I use in a marinade for chicken 
albeit mm. not Lebanese, but maybe infused with the flavor. And sure. I think it's a, a wonderful, uh, not only acidic flavor, yeah. but I think it's a great tenderizer. And it adds that beautiful, bright rich depth that you can't really get from anything else. I always have a bottle of pomegranate molasses on hand. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. I so- mean, it's, it's in a lot of diff- different dishes in Lebanese cooking. And um, uh, in our orchard up in the mountain, we, we use the sour um, pomegranates, the sweet ones people eat. But the sour ones, they make molasses out of. Jumana, if you would pause there, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, more about the beauty of Beirut right after this. We're cooking dishes from her native Beirut, Jumana Assad, you and me, Chef Jamie. I want to delve into the recipes because, as I said, they made me hungry. Um, <laughs> would you share with us a bit about tomb, this garlic cream that you make as a sandwich spread, uh, as you say, or a, a condiment to just about anything? Yes. It's bright white in color, but it's soft in flavor. Yes, it's... Um... It's to make the tomb. It could be a very simple one, but it's like a daily thing in in the Lebanese kitchen. Mm. If you have a couple of cloves and you've got a special wooden mortar and you just pound them with some salt and get that creamy paste and you add it to anything you're making, whether it's your salad dressing or uh, a stew or anything. Um, if you're making uh, sandwiches, then you want you want it to be more like the texture of a mayonnaise. So you would be preparing a paste and adding to it the garlic, and uh, that way you could spread it more easily on your pita bread mm. and add your meat and your veggies and all that stuff. Right, so, so you use either cornstarch or you speak about potato flour and the, the garlic paste, a little bit of vegetable oil and lemon juice, and it, it gets whipped up like the consistency of mayonnaise. I, it looks luscious. I'd like to eat it off the in, spoon. In minutes. In, in minutes. In minutes. If, you, if, if you have a, a mini processor, boom, uh, within 10 minutes you've got it. And it keeps for a couple days, mm-hmm. and uh, it's so handy. Mm. Another, and it's, Yes, very good with chicken. <laughs> uh, perfect. Okay, good to know. Another one of the traditions of Lebanese cuisine, you make a rice and vermicelli pilaf. And it's, yes. it's one of the dishes I know to be inherent of Lebanese style because it combines the two starches, so you get a textural dynamic that's very unique. Yes. Uh, the rice is not um, native to Lebanon. It was imported from Asia, from the f- Far East. I mean, we're still in Asia in Lebanon, but we're yes. in the or Near East. Anyway, um, it became so popular that now it's, it would be unheard of to serve a stew or anything without having the, the rice and vermicelli pilaf as a side dish. We certainly appreciate your sharing your passion for Lebanese cuisine, sharing your heritage. It's with my over, pleasure. Thank you. With over 150 <laughs> recipes inspired by her grandmother in her family's kitchen, Jumana Akkad has captured the flavors of the Middle East and made them accessible to you. The book has just released, and it is called Taste of Beirut, delicious Lebanese recipes from the classic to the contemporary. I've excerpted a recipe at chefjamie.com. 
to inspire you. And the invite stands. I hope that you'll come back and, and celebrate the culture and your cuisine closer to the holidays so that we can continue to cook Lebanese dishes in our kitchens. Jamie, it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was my pleasure. As the delicious conversation continues, and there's more right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. This is food conversation that fits your life. You know Tori Johnson as the steals and deals guru on Good Morning America, whom we all love watching. She's also built two multi-million dollar businesses, is a New York Times bestselling author and a popular speaker. And her New York Times bestselling book entitled The Shift, How I Finally Lost Weight and Discovered a Happier Life, has just released in paperback. In 12 months, she lost more than 60 pounds. And since she published The Shift, another 15 pounds have come off. She shares what she learned, how she eats, and how she's changed over that time. And I'm delighted to welcome you back. It's a pleasure to talk with you again, Tori. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Okay, so the paperback releases. Congratulations to you. And in the interim between hardcover and paperback, you received a slew of wonderful conversations from mainly women who have, I think, been so impacted by your transformation. They see that losing the weight for you changed you physically and mentally and emotionally. And I wonder how all of that extraordinary bandwagon of support has contributed to to your thoughts and feelings of the weight loss. I'm excited for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since the when the original book came out, I got so many emails. I, I get them every single day from people who say, we're sisters from another mother, we <laughs> must be twins, you've got inside my head, I can't believe this, I can't Amazing. believe someone else has the same feelings and thoughts and experiences that I have. And most of all, I sort of think that I could do this. If you could do it after not being able to do it and your our patterns are so similar I think I could do it too and you know when people tell me that I say great like commit to this send me a picture oh no I don't want to send pictures I hate how I look I'm like great that's good send me a picture of what you hate how you don't like how you look nobody's going to see it I promise it's going to sit in my in my inbox but I want to be able to help you track your progress so in three months and six months and 12 months when you send me another picture we're going to get to do this amazing comparison and and so I've done that with so many women and in the paperback, we share some of those success stories, but um, but there are too many to have to have included, which is uh, a great problem to have. And oh, so, course. I'm thrilled for their success, and their success continues to fuel my success. Is daily accountability still your key factor? Oh, yeah. Because you say there's no pill, there's no potion, there's no plan, and I believe in everything in moderation. And and you know, I'm a, a food indulgent, you know, doubt. So two things. One, to answer the moderation, I mean, the um, the daily accountability. Yes, I weigh myself every day. I wear a Nike fuel band so that I can't say, oh, I felt like I walked a lot today. And I look down and I'm like, no, you took a thousand steps today. And like, you need to do a lot more. Um, so the daily scale sort of just keeps me, it just helps me know where I am. It doesn't mean I live or die by the scale. It just means that I don't want two weeks to go by and I'm like, oh my gosh, like where'd those 10 pounds come from? How did this happen? Because I'm just always aware. And I think being aware is, um, is, is so powerful. 
So that's one thing. The other thing is the moderation thing, the moderation issue, the moderation gene. I don't think I was born with the moderation <laughs> gene. Um, much like people who are alcoholics or smokers, you can't celebrate a month of sobriety with a beer. You can't um, mark a milestone of you know a month without cigarettes by having a pack of cigarettes because it puts those people who are addicted to those things just right back into a bad path. Where you started, and right. I am a kind of person who would always celebrate like a week of healthy eating with a cupcake or two or five or whatever. Like, And a bite turns into the whole bag. A piece turns into the whole pie. And so I discovered for me that it's it really is akin to the person who can't drink, can't smoke, and just wants to make a change. It's more painful for me to have, like, the piece of cake or, or, or the cupcake or whatever and then have to, like, restart or because it's never just a bite. It's never just a piece. It's it, it goes further than that. I can't tell you, Tori, what joy I feel when I watch you on Good Morning America. You look so happy. And you look so young, by the way. (laughs) You look beautifully (laughs) young. And the transformation is wonderful to see. And I thank you for sharing what was a very painfully honest story and a very inspiring one in the book. You can make the shift, says Tori Johnson. The book has released in its paperback version how she finally lost weight and discovered a happier life. You can check it out at shiftwithtori.com, and I like to go to torijohnson.com as well. Lots of recipes in the back of the book as well for food lovers because it is doable. Make the shift. Tori, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back on. You're I hope to talk nice to you soon. very nice to have me. Thank you yes, for being so gracious. Of course. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope you'll tune in next Sunday to get your quick fix of culinary entertainment once again. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So become a friend. And I'll leave you with this. I like to call it my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. Well, I never met anybody that didn't love a buffalo wing. And so I thought, What could be better for game day? You see, we're a football family. So whether it's the football game or a movie night snack idea, I have to tell you, this might be one of the best yet. It has everything you love about a crispy, spicy buffalo wing, except for it's in the form of popcorn. Yes, you heard me right. It's buffalo popcorn. And I know you're running to your pantry right now to see if you have these four simple ingredients. So here goes. All you do in a small saucepan is melt unsalted butter with hot sauce and a little bit of honey. And you can adjust the measurement of those ingredients as you like. I like four tablespoons of butter to two teaspoons of hot sauce and one tablespoon of honey. And then I add in a generous pinch of salt. And then I use popped popcorn from a bag or you can pop it yourself. You place the popcorn in a large bowl. You drizzle it with that buffalo mixture. Sweet, spicy, salty, oh so good. And I guarantee you it will be gone by halftime. Depending upon your hot sauce, of course, 
depends upon the amount of kick. But I will say this buffalo popcorn might just make you a culinary hero in your own living room. Check out Facebook at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll post the recipe for the buffalo popcorn once again. And I'll meet you here next Sunday when the scrumptious conversation continues. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well,